So I invite you, if you would like, to turn your copies of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll actually read the, the last verse of Hebrews 10 and then through Hebrews 11 verse 7. Though, again, our focus, as it says in your bulletin, is on Hebrews 11 verses 5 through 7. <coughs> So we'll be reading, beginning at Hebrews 10, verse 39. <coughs> but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was, he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And having read God's word, let us briefly pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask that you would bless uh, your word in all of our lives, in all of our hearts, uh, Lord, that your word read and preached would be used, that your spirit, your Holy Spirit would be mightily at work, that you would use me, that you would mold me uh, a clay pot, and Lord, that the words of my mouth would be the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would also be helping and guiding all of us as we seek not only to, to listen to your word, but Lord, to understand it. We ask that your spirit would enable us to do that, and not only to understand it, but Lord, also to apply it to each of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, and we pray that you would use it in each of our lives here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you can see there's some other uh, scripture passages, and we'll be uh, looking, turning to those a little bit later as we, look at, uh, as we look at these three verses here from Hebrews. But as you think of the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, this, uh, what many people have called the, the hall of faith, what is the point? What is the point of this, of this chapter? And, and especially, what is the point of the passage we're looking at today, verses 5 through 7? is the point that it is showing us, it is revealing to us, it is making us think about and, and remind us and, and exalting, I guess, the, the people of old, our, our mothers and fathers in the faith. Well, no, that's not really the point. That's at least not the main point. 
Is it to show us the actions that these people took, like Enoch and Noah, and previously, before that, Abel? Is it to show us and to emphasize what they did? And again, I would say no, that's not the main emphasis here in this passage and in this chapter. The main emphasis is to point to the faith of these people, the faith which led to actions. It is the point to their faith, the faith by which they pleased God. Calvin says about this chapter that the writer's object in this chapter is to show that however excellent were the works of the saints, it was from faith that they derived all their value, their worthiness, and all their excellencies. And thus it follows what he has already intimated, that the fathers pleased God by faith alone, that they pleased God by faith alone. The emphasis is not them The emphasis is not even their actions. The emphasis is the faith, the faith which drove them to action. So we are to consider the faith of our mothers and fathers, including from this text, Enoch and Noah. We are to see how they were looking forward to the promises which were yet to happen, which were yet to come. And ultimately to see, we are to see how they were looking toward the Messiah And especially these saints, Enoch and Noah, as well as really Abel, they stood out in stark contrast to everyone else around them. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But they they stood out. They they had faith, and their faith reflected how they lived. It, It powered, if you will, the things that they did in their life. And that was in stark contrast to basically everyone around them, especially Noah, who was the only righteous one in his day. And so for us here this morning, brothers and sisters, what are we to see? What are we to take away from this passage? Ultimately, you and I, we are to draw near to God. And we are to draw near to God by pleasing him, by pleasing him with our faith-driven obedience. So you draw near to God by pleasing him with your faith-driven obedience. And we'll look at three different exhortations from this passage, which you can see uh, in the outline in, in your bulletins, if you would like to follow along. And the first is that you, like Enoch, please God by your faith. And then second, seek and draw near to God by your faith in his promises. And then third and finally, you, like Noah, believe God, obey him, and become heirs of righteousness by faith. So first, as we think about how we are to draw near to God, how we are to please him with our faith-driven obedience, we see the first example of Enoch. And you, brothers and sisters, like Enoch, please God by your faith. Please him by your faith and only by your faith. And at this point, I do want to read from Genesis chapter 5, just a couple of short verses that's really the, the, only, um, the only part in the narrative text of history that we have, Enoch, are just these few short verses. So Genesis 5, beginning at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, All the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, 
and he was not, for God took him. And then verse 5, I'll read this again. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch walked with God. He pleased God by his faith. In a similar way to Noah, in the passage that was read earlier, Noah in Genesis 6-9, it says that he was a righteous man and it said that he walked with God. The actual, in the Hebrew, the, what, what we have in most of our English translations is walked with, and that's, that's what the Hebrew word says. They, he walked with God. He walked with God. But actually, it's translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's translated as pleased God, uh, because the idea of walking is to please, is to be in agreement with. Enoch walked with God like Noah walked with God, and both of them pleased God. That is the point of this. You please God by walking with him and ultimately by your faith. You can't walk with someone without being in some amount of agreement with them. Like Amos 3.3 says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? There have to be mutual agreements in order to walk together. If you're walking with someone, you have to agree. You have to agree where you're going. So I'll use HP in this example because he's not here and I, and I know him. But imagine if, if I came here uh, to this church building and HP and I were meeting together for the day for whatever reason. And as we met together, we realized both of us needed to go to the grocery store. And uh, both of us agreed, okay, let's go, let's walk to the grocery store. It's such, such a beautiful day. And so we, we go to the grocery store. But as we're walking to the grocery store, I actually head down to uh, King Super and HP goes to Walmart. So we both agreed to go to the grocery store and agreed to walk there, but we went to different places. You're not walking together if you don't have the same destination in mind. We might walk together for a bit, but then we're going we're gonna to take different paths to get to the different places we're going. But not only are we, do we have to agree with the destination, we have to agree to the path with the path to get there. So let's say we agree, all right, let's, let's, go, to, let's go to Walmart, we'll do that. And, and I decide, I want to go take the most direct route. And HP is like, oh, man, you should go this way. We'll see some beautiful scenery on the way. And so HP ends up, I ended up going the most direct way, and HP goes a little bit more scenic way. Well, you know, we, we do have the same destination, but we're, we're not walking together because we didn't agree on the path to get to that destination. But not only do we have to agree on the destination, the place we're going, the path we're going, but we have to agree on the pace that we're going at if we're going to walk together. So if HP and I say, okay, we'll go the same way, we'll take, we'll take the same path and we'll go to Walmart, but then I end up going doing race walking and HP is 15 minutes behind by the time we get there, we're not walking together. So the, the emphasis is we have to, if we're walking together, if we're in agreement with another, it's not only that we're going to the same place, it's not even only that we're taking the same path to get there, but we're actually walking at the same pace to get there as well. One pastor and commentator said that, that Enoch's walk produced two wonderful things, fellowship and righteousness. And he used this, 
he uses the idea of walking together, that when two people are walking together, that they agree. They agree on the place they're going, the path they're going to take to get there, and the pace at which they're going. And Enoch walked with God for more than 300 years. Enoch walked together with God. He fellowshiped. He was in fellowship with his, his God, his Savior. He was, as, as he says, matching God stride for stride along the path of life while headed for the city of God. And that produced in Enoch a righteous life. So what does that mean for you and I as we, as we please God, as we walk with God in our life? I think, I think we understand we're going to the same destination. We're going to be with God for all eternity in an in a even fuller way than we are able to be right now here on earth. We even agree, we understand, we have to take the same path to get there. We think of the example of Pilgrim's Progress, and there were many who tried, even, even Christian himself went for times, he went off of the straight and narrow path. He tried to go a different way. He was not, well, he did that walking with God. But how does that apply to us, the, the pace that we go, as we think about the, the place, the, the path, and the, and, the, and the pace at which we walk I think ultimately, and really Hebrews 11 shows us this, we have to be patient. We have to wait. There are many times where we want the pace to the path, to the place we're going to be quick. We don't want to have to stop. We don't want to have to wait on God. We don't want to have to just be patient because it's hard. It's difficult. It's difficult to wait for God's promises. But we are to not only as we walk with God, not only go the same to the same place on the same path, but we have to walk at the same pace. In Enoch's life, his, his faith in God drove his walk with God, drove his pleasing God. It, it came before, his faith came before he walked with God. It's, it's be better to say that his faith in God, Enoch's faith in God, actually produced his walk with God, which then in turn pleased God that his faith produced the walk with God that he had. And what is the most important aspect of our fellowship, our walk with God? How can we please God? Well, I'm sure you know we please God by not only believing him, but believing in the one that he sent. Jesus himself says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent in John chapter 6. We are to believe God. We are to believe his promises. We are to walk with him. And if we believe him, if we have faith, if our faith drives our walk with God, then we will please God. Another commentator said, what makes any man well-pleasing to God is faith. It's only faith. And without that, there is no possibility of pleasing God. If you don't have faith, you cannot please God. It is impossible, in fact, to please God. Well, as we continue thinking about Enoch, verse 6 is really referring to Enoch as well in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to read that once again, that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So you and I, we are to seek God. We are to draw near to God. And how can we do that? How are we commanded to do that? 
simply by our faith in his promises. And I say simply like it's, it's I don't mean it's, it's easy to do. It's a simple thing to do, but we have to do it. We have to trust God's promises. We have to believe not only that he exists, because as we know that even the demons believe that God exists and they tremble, but we have to believe, trust that God rewards those who seek him. Like Hebrews uh, in, in the end of chapter 10 in verse 38, quoting from uh, Habakkuk says, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are to seek and draw near to God by our faith in his promises, trusting in his promises. And Enoch really is in contrast in, in a way, uh, in the way that he lived and that he never saw death is in contrast with the one who was mentioned before him. And this isn't our, our focus, but I, I want to read verse four again of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. All of these saints, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses, and all the others who are mentioned, some not even by name, they believed God. They believed that God was, that God is who he says he is. And therefore, they did what he told them to do. They did what is said, what is declared in his word. And that is what you and I are to do as well. Believe that God is who he said he is, that he keeps his promises, that he has given us instruction for how we can live, how we can have faith, and how we know how to walk this life with him in his word. So we are to seek after him. We are to draw near to him as a result. As we seek after him, as we, as we seek to know him better, to be able to walk with him better, we do that by faith and we, by believing in his promises. We are not to be like those around Enoch. You read the passage, the genealogy around Enoch, and what does it say at the end after it talks about each of these, these men who lived for hundreds of years? It says, and he died, and he died, and he died. But Enoch is different. He walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. He did not die. We have the, the contrast between Abel and Cain in the verse previous, a couple verses previous, that uh, we are not to be like Cain. We are not to be like those around Enoch in his time or like those around Noah, as you well know. Calvin spoke about this passage that men in vain weary themselves in serving God unless they observe the right way. That it's wearisome that people weary themselves in attempting to serve God if they don't do it in the right way. You think about Cain and Abel especially. They both offered sacrifices to God, but, but Abel offered the sacrifices that God had asked him to give. And Cain did not. And the responses of Cain and Abel showed their heart. They did not believe. They did not, well, Cain, rather, did not believe. He, he wearied himself in serving God or trying, attempting to serve God the way that he wanted to. But it was futile. God determines the way that we are to please him. We don't determine how we please God. He determines how we please him. 
He instructs us. He tells us how we can please him. That's why he's given us this word, so that we can please him, that we can glorify him as well as enjoy him. And we are to believe God and believe in his promises. Do you believe in God's promises? Do you believe what he says in his word? Do you believe that he hears and he answers your prayers? As many of you were praying out loud and all of us were praying together in our hearts, if not with our mouths, do you, do we believe that God hears and answers prayer? Do you believe that even that God delights in hearing our prayers and answering them for his children? Do you believe that God really does give peace Peace that surpasses understanding, even in and really especially in trouble and turmoil and hardships. Do you believe that God gives joy in the midst of pain and suffering? Do you believe and do you ask that God would give you joy in your salvation like David does in Psalm 51? Do you believe that God gives you everything you need and always will do so? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that in in hard times? Do you believe that in in lean times? when When you don't have the things that you want and you feel perhaps like you don't have even what you need, do you believe that God keeps his promise to give you all that you need, that he is with you and that he will provide for you? Do you believe that God always gives you a way of escape in the midst of temptation? That there is always a way that God gives you to escape that temptation and not sin. Do you believe that God will complete the work that he has begun in you? That he is continuously throughout your life making you more like him. Making you more like your savior. Sanctifying you. And if you believe these things, does your life reflect that you believe God's promises? Would others around you especially those outside of the church, do they, would they see your life and, and think based on the things that you say, the things that you do, just the way that you live your life, would they think that you believe in God and that you believe his promises, that you trust in his promises? And do you believe in God in living in the midst of a sinful world, a world, a world full of sin and the consequences of sin, a world full of people that like many of the psalmists say, seem to be thriving and and persevering and even living long lives, even though they are wicked and sinful and, and hate God. And then you see people around you, perhaps like you, you included perhaps, or your families that are struggling, that are experiencing hardships, that are dying before they reach old age. In the midst of that, do you believe God's promises? Well, Enoch, Noah, Abel, as I have mentioned before, they they all believed God's promises and they all stood out, again, in very stark contrast to the people around them. They were mostly, if not entirely, alone in their faith and in their righteousness. But all of them believed and all of them were also rewarded. All of them experienced God's rewards to them. Their faith was connected to their lives for all of them. Uh, Kent Hughes said that for his faith, Abel paid the price of his life. Abel, for his faith, paid the price of his life. 
And Enoch, because of his faith, he was taken from this life. Because of Enoch's faith, he was taken from this life. And then Noah, by his faith, he saved his own and his family's lives. All of them, faith was directly connected to life for them. And if we are to believe God rewards his people, we can see, okay, he, he rewards his people. He took Enoch from this life. He didn't have to experience the pain of death. He saved Noah and his family and the ark and all the animals with him. But what about Abel? And again, I know this isn't our focus, but I, I have to talk about it a little bit. Why does God use the example of Abel? And then a couple verses later, he talks about rewarding those who please him. What was Abel's reward? He did what God wanted him to do. He did it for the right reasons. And then his brother, out of jealousy and hatred for him, killed him. He lived out his faith and he was murdered for it. But Abel, if we really think about it, he had such a great reward. His reward, I mean, he had the reward of God accepting his sacrifice here on the earth, but his reward was seen when he passed into heaven, when he was, was transformed from this physical body into a spiritual one and was taken up into heaven. Abel entered into God's presence. He experienced what his parents, Adam and Eve, did for a time before they fell, before they sinned against God. He walked with God. He talked with God. He saw God. He saw our Trinitarian God. And have you ever thought about this, that Abel was the first person to enter heaven? He was the first person to enter heaven, to go into God's presence in heaven, to spend eternity with him. He was the forerunner of the many millions, if not billions, of Christians who followed him there, following their, our ultimate forerunner, Jesus Christ. And you will experience this. You will experience heaven unless Jesus comes back before you die. You will experience what Abel has been experiencing for, in our time, for thousands of years of our time, being in God's presence with him. But death is still hard. It is still difficult. It is still one of the ultimate uh, uh, things that results from sin, that resulted from Adam and Eve's first sin, and all of us sin, all of our sin, like our father, Adam, and Eve. Enoch, on the other hand, did not experience death. He was transformed from this world to the spiritual realm, to be with God, translated as many, as many say. He didn't experience death. And there's an interesting contrast, again, between Abel and Enoch that Martin Luther uh, points out, that although in Abel, you and I, everyone in the human race saw death, yet in Abel, we see a better life. We see the eternal promises, the eternal rewards, life for all eternity with God in a place of perfection that we can read about in the book of Revelation most clearly. Enoch, on the other hand, he did not experience death. Yet in him, what do we see? We see we have a picture of what happens, what comes after death. Enoch, though he did not experience the physical death that all of us unless Jesus comes back, are going to experience, he experienced the life after death that all of us will see. 
So both of them point to the eternal promises, the eternal promises of God that we must believe, that God hears and is with his people and his, those who please him by their faith, that he rewards them. And the ultimate rewards that we see are not in this life. They are in the life that is yet to come. Well, as we look at our our third and final exhortation from this text, you, like Noah, believe God, obey him, and become heirs of righteousness by faith. Like Noah, you believe God, obey him, and become heirs of righteousness by faith. I want to read again verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And I want to read a couple of, just a couple of verses from Genesis as well as we, as we think about Noah, just to get our mind back into Noah and what in his life. First, verse 32 of Genesis chapter 5. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then going down to the end of chapter 6, which I know we read already, but after God gave Noah these instructions, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That's said twice in this passage, you may have noticed from our earlier reading. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. And then down to chapter 9, after they get off of the ark, after the flood destroys everything except the ark and them in it. Chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then down to verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Noah believed God. Noah obeyed him. And Noah became an heir of righteousness by faith, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says so clearly. Noah is presented by, having, by being warned of the things to come, but the things that were not yet visible. And what did he do in response to that? He feared. He built an ark, and he condemned the world by building that ark. And because of that, Noah became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. Noah believed God. Noah feared him. That's one thing that I think we can particularly take from this text, is that trusting God, believing his promises, also means believing his judgments, that his judgments are true, his warnings are real. And that should lead us to fear. And especially that should lead us, like it did for Noah, to fear for those around us. Noah, as, as Peter says in 2 Peter 2.5, was a, a herald of righteousness or a preacher of righteousness. He feared the proclamation of judgment and he told others about it. And Noah's fear, the fear that expressed that he trusted, that he believed what God said, led to Noah's obedience. God gave the warning Early in Genesis chapter 6, as it's recorded, that the life of man was going to be 120 years. That's 
There were going to be only 120 years before he destroyed the earth. So that means since Noah stepped onto the ark when he was 600 years old, that he was 480 years old when, Noah, when God gave the warning, the warning of what was going to come. God told Noah, warned him that in 120 years he was going to destroy the earth. And he told Noah to build an ark. And what did Noah do? He did all that the Lord commanded him. He believed, he had faith in God's promises, including fearing God's judgment, and he obeyed him. Have you thought about that God actually told Noah that to build this ark and that he was going to save, God told Noah that he was going to save his family. He was going to save not only Noah's wife, but Noah's sons and their wives. And God told him this before Noah had even given birth to a child yet. Noah was 500 years old when he had his first son. God told him 20 years before he gave birth, before he and his his wife had their first child, that he was going to destroy the world and he was going to save Noah, his wife, and their sons and their sons' wives. And Noah believed God, despite not having any children yet. And we know this, again, because Noah entered the ark when he was 600 years old, and Noah did not have his first child until he was 500 years old. Now, we can't answer this with this question with certainty, but why is it that Noah waited so much longer than any of the others that are mentioned in the book of Genesis who lived hundreds of years, 900-something years, many of them? Why did Noah wait so much longer than anyone else recorded in Scripture to have his first child? Well, perhaps it it was because simply of the wickedness all around him, the wickedness in the world around him, that he and his wife didn't want to have children. That could be a possible answer. But I think it's really much more likely, especially given the examples of many others in Scripture, that I I believe that like Abram and Sarah and many other saints in Scripture, that Noah and his wife were not able to have children for a long time. And that God promised to Noah and his wife that he was going to save his wife and his sons and their wives. That they would go into the ark with him after he had built it. And I believe that Noah had faith. Despite he and his wife perhaps having tried to have children for centuries, they believed God's promises. Not only that he was going to destroy the world, that he, not only obeying him to build this ark, but believing his promises that he was going to save his children that were not yet born. He had faith. He believed God. And what did God do? God gave him three sons who were married before they had to enter into the ark. He believed God and began to build this massive boat that was something like 450 yards long and something like 40 feet, 45 feet high and 75 feet wide. And as he was building this, as he was also preaching to others about the judgment that was to come, as he believed God concerning his judgment, but also concerning his promises to save him and his family and his children yet unborn, he built this ark. He, his faith drove his obedience some have, have said, some, some do disagree with me. There, there, there are a few that, that disagree and, and think that, no, 
God must not have given Noah the, the warning 120 years before because God gives the promise that, that he's going to save his, his sons and their wives. And so therefore, Noah must have already had his sons. His sons must have already even been married before he began to build the ark. But most that I've read do not agree with that. And I, I think it really emphasizes Moses' faith even more. God warns Noah. Noah built the ark, spent 120 years to build that ark. It emphasizes that, that it just shows even more clearly Noah's faith in God's promises. That Noah believed God's promises, that he feared God's warning. That Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In fact, if you think about it, Noah became the singular heir of righteousness at that time. Everyone around him, Noah lived at a time when the earth was more wicked than it ever has been and than it ever was until the time of Noah. Noah was the only righteous one in his time. Noah was the only one who walked with God and who pleased God. And so can you and I, and so must you and I. We must fear and trust God, believe that he is and believe that he rewards those, his children. Fear, reverent fear, showing our trust, our belief in God. Calvin again says, Faith then, though its most direct regard is to God's promises, yet it also looks on God's threatenings as far as it is necessary for us to be taught to fear and obey God. Another thing that I've mentioned a couple of times already to take from Noah's life was that he did not keep the things that God had told him to himself. Noah, through his words and his actions, through his building the ark that everyone could see around him, but also through his being a preacher, a herald of righteousness to the most wicked generation that ever existed on earth, that Noah believed God and he preached about God's promises and about God's coming judgment for those who rejected his promises, for those who did not believe. He preached for 12 decades, preached about God's impending judgment. And no one, as we know, listened to him. No one came onto that ark. No one came in this world that had, had never actually seen rain. No one believed the flood, the, the destruction that God had said was going to come, except Noah and his family. Commentator John Brown says the example, the example of Noah and the flood is, is more instructive and as it, as it naturally and almost necessarily brings before the mind the fearfully destructive efficiency of unbelief. It shows how destructive unbelief really is. The world that perished the world that Noah lived in when he was building this ark, that world basically had the same message delivered to them that Noah received. Had, had they repented, there is no reason to doubt that the fearful destruction, the fearful in, in, infliction that God promised would have taken place. If the people would have believed what God said and what Noah preached to them, they would not have been destroyed. Think of the example of Jonah 
preaching to the wicked city of Nineveh. And what happened? The king and many of the people following him believed what Jonah said, what God said. They believed. And what did God do? He relented from the destruction that he warned about. Noah believed and feared and obeyed and was saved. But the people around them disbelieved. They mocked. They were disobedient and they perished. We see the destructive, the destructiveness of unbelief. And we also see, as, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, that Noah, what did he do? He, he condemned the world by his faith, by his, his faith-driven obedience to God. And it seems a, a little strange, at least on first look, to think about Noah condemning the world. Because really, we could see that, that wouldn't we tend to say that Noah saved the world? He saved the world from complete destruction by his family and the animals that he took with him on the ark. His being saved delivered the world from complete destruction, but it condemned those who did not listen, who did not believe. Calvin said that Noah, by obeying God's command, condemned by his example and by the obstinate disobedience of the world, his Noah's wonderful deliverance from the midst of death was an evidence that the world justly perished because God would have doubtless saved the world had it not been unworthy of being saved. And you know, there really is a similarity to what Jesus did, that Jesus, by his coming to this world, by his being born a man, by being fully God and fully man, by living a perfect life and dying on the cross, taking the sins of all who believe in him upon himself, and then by rising from the dead on the third day and ascending into heaven, by doing this, Jesus both saved and condemned the world. Jesus himself talks about this and Matthew 24, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away, and so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Those who believed will be saved. We look forward to the time when Jesus comes back we look forward to his coming back to the earth. But for those who do not believe, they are condemned by their unbelief, by their not listening, by their not believing the gospel, the message of hope. Peter in 1 Peter says, says this about Jesus and comparing Jesus again with Noah and the flood. That Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
Jesus saved those who believe. Again, as he said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And for you, for everyone who does believe, Jesus became man, taking on human flesh, and he did that for you. Jesus lived a perfect life with which no man following Adam could do, and he did that for you. Jesus died as a perfect sacrifice, truly the only innocent human to ever live and die, and he did that for you, for everyone who believes in him. Jesus rose from the dead, defeating Satan and sin and the curse of of sin, which is death, and he did that for you. And Jesus entered into God's presence as your forerunner, showing the penalty had been paid for you, which enables you also to come into God's presence. And now you and I, we wait patiently for God's return. We are too, because of what Jesus has done for us, that this faith, the faith that God has given to us in the first place, is to drive how we live our lives. That we are to glorify and enjoy God in all that we do. That we are to believe him, that, we, that our faith drives us toward obedience. That we are also, like Noah, to preach the good news of the gospel to those who, until they believe, are perishing and are condemned. So, brothers and sisters, you, like Enoch, please God by your faith. And you seek and draw near to God by your faith in his promises. And you, like Noah, believe God, obey him, and become heirs of righteousness by faith. Draw near to God by pleasing him with your faith-driven obedience. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word that you have given us, that you have given us in your word everything that we need to know for faith and for life. Lord, we ask that we would believe in your word, that we would believe that you exist and that you reward those who believe you, that you reward those who are your children. Lord, we ask that our lives would reflect what we believe, what we say we believe, that we would believe it and that every aspect of our life would show, would declare our faith to everyone around us. Lord, we thank you for saving us through faith in Jesus Christ, that, Lord, he became sin for us there on the cross so that we could become the righteousness of God. Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you have done and what you continue to do, what you promise also that is to come in the future. And Lord, we ask that we would live our lives in thanksgiving for what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.